Hello and welcome to the Social Work Sessions with myself, Carolyn Smith, Principal Social Worker for Adults from Somerset Council. Social Work Sessions is a podcast that makes space for conversations about social work with adults. A podcast to support your learning, reflection and exploration of contemporary issues in practice. So welcome to another edition of the Social Work Sessions. I'm really pleased to have Michael Preston Shute with me again today. Um, so if you've been listening to other episodes of the podcast, you may well already have heard um, the previous episodes that I've recorded with Michael. If you haven't heard them, do go back. And particularly to the first episode that Michael uh, recorded with me, where Michael gives some background to his own career um, and uh, how he's arrived where he is today. And also there's a little reference to Greek taverners, which uh, you might be curious about. There's history in there as well, medieval history, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. But today we're going to be talking about legal literacy. So a really central, fundamental topic for social work. So, Michael, really good to see you again today. Welcome. Thank you. Good to see you too. Brilliant. So let's start off by asking the question, what do you mean by legal literacy? So if we're starting totally from scratch, what are we talking about legal literacy with legal literacy? Okay. Um, well, I'll um, get to answering the question by telling a little story. Um, nice. Uh, I first became a social work academic back in 1988, having spent 10 years in a variety of um, settings as a social work practitioner. And around the time I became a social work academic, um, there was concern nationally that uh, students leaving uh, social work programs as qualified social workers did not know enough about the law. And as a result, the then social work regulator, the Central Council for Education and Training in Social Work, uh, decided that every social work education program um, uh, should have uh, a unit or a module on uh, law and that social work students should be assessed in law and it was the only subject that was prescribed in that kind of way by the social work regulator and that has continued um, uh, pretty consistently from around 1988 present day and when I became a social work academic uh, I was asked by the School of Social Work that employed me at that time to lead on uh, teaching law to social workers. And um, uh, I'm still doing that um, a considerable number of years later. Indeed. Um, when I first began, we didn't talk about legal literacy. We didn't have the phrase legal literacy um uh, in our uh, lexicon uh, or our vocabulary. What we did develop initially was this idea that there were core parts of uh, the legal rules in England that social workers needed to know something about. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of those legal rules were so central to social workers that they were, in a sense, must-have knowledge. Yes. And other areas of the law 
were perhaps more tangential to the main social work task uh, and were therefore areas of law that social workers needed to know something about, even if they didn't actually know the full detail. So uh, thinking of uh, adult social care work, um, clearly the Care Act 2014 would be uh, an area of law that social workers must know in detail, whereas housing legislation might be something that social workers would need to have um, a basic familiarity with. Uh, but might not necessarily have um, all of the full um, uh, detail. So we drew a distinction between what we called social work law, which would be those areas where social workers must have legal knowledge, yes. Care Act 2014, Mental Capacity Act 2005 being, uh, being uh, two examples, and then areas of law that we called social welfare law. Uh, where social workers needed to have a basic familiarity, a basic awareness, but not necessarily detailed knowledge. Um, the Homelessness Reduction Act 2017 would be uh, would be one example. Uh, public health, environmental health legislation, particularly in relation to people living in situations of self-neglect and hoarding, would be another example. And so, for a considerable number of years, uh, I and and colleagues in social work education across England were really focusing on how do we teach uh, the basic legal rules so that social workers leaving uh, qualifying uh, programs have a basic knowledge uh, of the legal rules and some understanding of how uh, to implement. What, however, we realised over uh, over a number of years. Uh, was that um, law is not the only knowledge that you need when you encounter complex and challenging cases where it isn't always clear what the right thing to do is. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that enabled us to begin to develop what became known as legal literacy. So now the answer to your question, Michael, what is legal literacy? <laughs> and there are there are three components to it. The first component is that social workers must have a detailed knowledge of what I'm calling social work law. So Care Act 2014, Mental Capacity Act 2005, uh, if you're involved with people experiencing severe and enduring forms of mental ill health, the Mental Health Act 1983, the Mental Health Act 2007, um, and must have a basic familiarity with what I've called uh, social welfare law, housing law being one example. Yes. So for those of us in uh, managerial positions, uh, supervisory positions, leading teams of social workers, for example, um, conducting Section 42 adult safeguarding um, uh, inquiries, we need to be satisfied, we need to be assured that social workers have a basic command of the legal rules um, uh, and indeed um, uh, know how uh, to uh, implement them. So the first component of legal literacy is legal knowledge and the skills in implementing uh, the legal rules, the powers and the duties that social workers have. And that is 
that can be captured as doing things right. Okay, so the first element of legal literacy is legal knowledge, and it's about doing things right. Doing things right in terms of the law. In terms of the law. Yeah. The second element then is when you're faced with choices, we could do this, we could do that, we could implement this duty, uh, we could implement that power. Um, uh, what should we decide to do? You then come into the second of the three components of legal literacy, and that is the interface between the legal rules and what I might call social work values or social work ethics. Yes. So we talk about making safeguarding personal. We talk about self-determination. We talk about the promotion of autonomy. Uh, we talk about empowerment. Um, we talk about the importance of professional curiosity. All of these uh, commitments, if you like, Mm -hmm. uh, are rooted in social work values and social work ethics. And when you're thinking about, should I exercise this statutory power? Should I exercise this particular duty in this particular situation? You need to draw on social work values and social work ethics. And so the second component of legal literacy is about doing right things. That makes sense. So we start with doing things right and we align that with doing right things. So we are putting together law on the one hand and social work values and ethics on the other in yes. order to determine when we should exercise a, a particular duty uh, or a particular power. And then the third component uh, is rooted in the Human Rights Act 1998 and the Equality Act 2010. So the Equality Act 2010 uh, requires us to make reasonable adjustments to counteract discrimination and promote equality of opportunity in relation to people who um, uh, belong to one or more um, of uh, the protected characteristics, race, culture, religion, sexuality, disability, age, uh, relationship status, uh, for example. And the Human Rights Act enshrines, not just in English law, but in law across the United Kingdom, the European Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms. So the right to life the right to live free of inhuman and degrading treatment, the right to liberty, uh, the right to uh, private and family life, um, the right to redress, the right to live free of um, discrimination, um, amongst other uh, human rights. And so when thinking about social work values and ethics, when thinking about um, uh, whether or not and, and how to implement the powers and the duties that social workers have, we have to think about equality and we have to think about human rights. And so the third element of legal literacy is rights thinking. So in order to arrive at a decision, if you are legally literate in the way that I've described, you will draw on your legal knowledge to do things right. You will draw on your social work values to do right things. 
and you will draw on your commitment to human rights, equality and social justice in order to engage in rights-based thinking. That, in a nutshell, is legal literacy. That's incredibly helpful. And I, I, I'm imagining in my own mind a little diagram. I'm quite a visual person and I'm imagining a, a diagram with, uh, with, with these different components together. But I'm also thinking in practice, we also draw on research. We also draw on theories from a whole range of social sciences and beyond as well. Would they fit around the outside of legal literacy or how, how would they interact? Well, the diagram that um, there's probably a diagram, isn't there, in a publication? Yeah, no, there thought. is. There is most definitely a diagram, and in fact, um, Susie and I, Susie Bray and I, developed a diagram uh, initially for research in practice. Um, uh, so, uh, if people have um, the opportunity to utilise uh, an organisational subscription to research in practice, you'll find material on legal literacy in the research in practice website. Um, and uh, within that, you'll find a diagram. And the diagram we used was, in fact, um, a cocktail glass. Mm -hmm. um, and the stem of uh, this cocktail glass uh, or wine glass, um, uh, the stem is relationship-based practice. Yes. Um, and then um, within uh, the, um, uh, the cocktail glass, uh, R3 um, depends on on, on what uh, one's favourite drink might be. Um, so they might be olives, they might be cherries, um, uh, they might be slices of lemon and lime and orange. Um, um, but basically there are three. Um, uh, I'll call them olives for want of a better uh, description uh, within the wine glass or cocktail glass. And, and they are uh, legal knowledge, social work values, and um, the commitment to human rights, equality, and social justice. Um, uh, I'll leave it to people's imagination as to what fluid uh, is 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 in the cocktail glass and and how one might um, you know uh, encapsulate or or describe um, uh, the fluid in the glass. But you but you get the idea that that in a sense, social work practice, the best social work practice is uh, uh, underpinned by relationships um, and it is social work practice that holds people uh, and uh, for long enough to enable them to develop um, uh, an improved quality of life to um, uh, protect themselves from uh, abuse or neglect um, uh, and if if that is the if you like the containing holding nurturing function of social work that is captured by the glass within that liquid if you like of social work practice and and that framework for social work practice you've got these three fundamental olives or cherries or pieces of fruit uh, depending on uh, which graphic um, speaks to you best. I'm going to take all of those ingredients out of the cocktail glass for a moment, Michael, and pop them into a cocktail shaker, okay? Mm -hmm. So I'm just imagining everything being shook up. And it sort of occurred to me as you were talking that so often um, there are conversations with social workers 
And all of the different elements, the legislation, values, ethics, human rights, equality, etc., um, gets all mixed in together. And it can be really difficult to to tease it all apart. There's little elements and it, and it, it can feel quite, quite stuck sometimes. So trying to actually tease it apart to have that real clear understanding, I think often that's in the early um, stages of a conversation, isn't it? If we're having a reflective conversation, for instance, you know, lots of it all mixed in together and then try to draw out the elements and really identify. So what is the question here? What is what is the legislation that is relevant? What what where, where, what are we looking at in terms of our values, our ethics, human rights, etc.? What theories might inform the sense we're making of a particular situation? And I yes, I, and I, uh, two parts of, of a response to that. Um, the first is um, that we need clarity of thinking about. What must we do here? What might we do here? Why must we do what we think we must do? And why might we do what we think we might do? Uh, and and clearly, the answer to those questions will, to a greater or a lesser extent, uh, reside in law and in social work values and in our commitment to human rights, equality and, and social justice. The second part of my answer to your observation is to say that particularly in complex and challenging cases, but not just, but particularly in complex and challenging cases, the importance of having a reflective space with supervisors, with peers, with safeguarding specialists, with legal advisors um, uh, at, at times in order to unscramble um, and to, if you like, disaggregate what, to use your metaphor, has become scrambled up in a cocktail shaker. Um, So that when you have done that, when you have poured out of your cocktail shaker all the different components, you can actually see the cocktail for for the richness and hopefully the tastefulness that it has. Um, And actually, in social work terms, that's about showing your workings, showing your workings out. And for uh, any of us who can remember our infant school and our junior school, if not our our senior school, um, and uh, uh, lessons in arithmetic and mathematics, most of which I dreaded because I wasn't very good at it, um yeah we will have been encouraged not just to get the right answer but to show how we got the right answer uh and the value of supervision uh, in particular uh, is to enable social workers to capture their workings uh so what legal rules did they consider why did they consider them why did they think they were relevant if you had options why did you choose option A as opposed to option B? And then alongside of that, um, uh, how did you consider social work values and social work ethics? Which values and which ethics did you think were particularly relevant for this particular situation? Why? And and how did you connect that with your reflections on um, uh, the law, the legal options that, that were available to you? And then thirdly, 
uh, how did you think about human rights, social justice and equality, um, and what impact did those reflections have on your ultimate uh, decision about a way forward in a particular case? Uh, so capturing all of that in supervision notes uh, and in recording, particularly for complex and challenging cases, the kinds of cases that might end up as Section 42 adult safeguarding inquiries or might end up in a coroner's court um, uh, or indeed a safeguarding adult review. Um, particularly important to disaggregate the different elements in your cocktail shaker, capture them separately and then putting them back together in a way that enables you to give a coherent account Yes. of what you considered and why you decided to do what you decided to do. And it's that coherent account that those of us involved in safeguarding adult reviews, those of us looking at the outcomes of uh, Section 42 adult safeguarding inquiries, those of us scrutinising serious incident reports, coroner's inquest judgments and so forth, that's what we're looking for. Can practitioners give a coherent account of their decision-making process. And that is a really skilled task, isn't it? To be able to, from the messy reality, the complex reality of situations that social workers find themselves in, to be able to, to tease the different elements apart, to ask questions like you just asked, and to be able to break it down and then formulate that coherent account and keep the person central to that as well. Yes, and I know from personal experience as a social worker many, many years ago, the, you know, it can be very tempting as a social worker to uh, practice individually, uh, mm -hmm. to carry all of the anxiety and risks oneself. Um, you know, one might touch base occasionally with a supervisor or a principal social worker or some such, but the, by and large, you know, um, the practice uh, in 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 which one engages is, if you like, a private enterprise. It's between the social work practitioner and whoever it is the social work practitioner is working with, and that's not what anybody should be doing. Um, uh, uh, you know, there should be quality and and regular uh, supervision, uh, which is to uh, quote a um, uh, publication from some considerable time ago, um, mm -hmm. uh, the reference for which I can't immediately recall, but, you know, supervision should be a warm bath and a cold shower combined. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it should be supportive, yes. yeah. uh, but it should also be challenging. Um, uh, why this? Why not that? You know, as well as how are you feeling? How are you going to prepare yourself for the next encounter? Um, uh, what have you learned from um, uh, um, um, a previous encounter? Um, I think there can also be a tendency within supervision as well to focus every month or six weeks on talking about the same people, the same scenarios, yes. particularly where there's really high risks, real complexity, mm -hmm. uh, situations and people and families that um, the social worker and the line manager are most worried about. And then there are people that are not brought to supervision and discussed because, of course, time is limited. 
So every time, you know, there's only time to talk about a certain number of people. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, and and so, um, you know, the supervisor who is uh, expressing concerned curiosity is looking at the list of cases that a social worker has and noting how often we are not talking about a particular case and asks the curious question as to why that might be. Mm. Um, and equally, a social worker who is or social care worker who is um, uh, reflective will be asking themselves, why am I not talking about, about this particular case? But in addition to the supervisor, whether that supervision is monthly or, 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 or on some different frequency level, um, you know, there are team members, uh, there are peers, uh, there are um, people in the multidisciplinary and multi-agency architecture, uh, all of whom um, might have a contribution to make to to help uh, a social worker or a social care practitioner uh, thinking through, why am I doing what I'm doing? Yes. Uh, why am I not doing something that other people might expect me to do? Um, or what, whatever. I mean, it's it's accessing the supports around that are so important. And one of the key repetitive pieces of learning from safeguarding adult reviews is that we are not doing that um, nearly enough. We are not we are not utilising the supervisory supports, the management oversight, the support from peers, the support from principal social workers and safeguarding specialists in local authority and ICBs and elsewhere. We're not we're not access, accessing those resources nearly enough. I think it's more challenging as well post the pandemic to to be able to have that support that we used to have in teams when we were based in offices virtually all of the time, then it was very easy to turn to your colleague or you came back from a visit and it was really clear your colleagues just knew that you needed to talk about the, you know, the situation that so that, that you had just been um, encountering. Yeah. And it, it does make me wonder um, about those social workers who've trained during the pandemic and haven't had that experience of being in an office. Those of us who've been around, around quite a long time, you know, we know when we, we need to have those conversations and would find great ways of reaching out because it's firmly embedded in our practice. Yes, I need to I need to reflect on this with somebody. I'll pick up the phone if I'm not going to see somebody in person in the in the next couple of days. But I, I do wonder um the impact on practice um for for people who did train within the pandemic and haven't got those um support mechanisms, reflective mechanisms um built in to day-to-day -to -day practice. It must be much more challenging to establish. I I, th I think it's undeniable that uh, remote working, uh, home-based working, uh, virtual working has had an impact on uh, many aspects of um, social work and social care practice. Um, so I so yeah, I get that. But I think whether you have trained during the pandemic and learned to do so much work virtually, or, or whether you trained before the pandemic and you've had to adjust uh, your modus operandi um, uh, because of, of lockdowns and the pandemic. Um, I, I think 
the challenge that you should be ask you should be asking yourselves the question that you should be asking yourselves uh, are you carrying too much risk alone are you carrying too much anxiety too much uncertainty uh, alone uh, are you finding ways whether they be virtual and electronic uh, or uh, in person are you finding uh, sufficient opportunities uh, to reflect on your anxieties, the risks that you're carrying, uh, the uncertainties that you are facing, uh, particularly about what might be uh, the right thing to do. Um, so having that appreciative inquiry, if you like, uh, um, of, of yourself and, and, and your approach. Um, having those mechanisms in, yeah. in place. Um, and I, th I think that's some, some, we've still got some way to go. I think within social work in the new world, hybrid working, I'm sure, is here to stay for the foreseeable future. And sure. of course, there's lots of positives of it as well for lots of people. But we do need to really focus on ensuring those mechanisms are in place. Um, it feels very different, I think, when you're working in a team where there is, or working with colleagues, where there is that regular opportunity to share mm -hmm. risk to reflect together to when you're working as an individual in isolation. Yeah. Michael, I just wanted to go back actually to the questions that um, that, that you were um, um, sort of drawing out a few minutes ago when we were talking about record keeping and being able to, um, to give that coherent um, story. Mm -hmm. Those questions are they written down anywhere? Are they in a textbook? Because the reason I ask this, it strikes me that they could form the basis for lots of social workers of a way of working through, okay, you know, in isolation sometimes or with colleagues, working through what's what's going on here, you know, what what legislation applies, etc., working through methodically. Um, well, there are um you know, academics like myself who've um, done the time on and thing and written books. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, I wrote the second edition of a book called Making Good Decisions, um, uh, which is essentially a book about law for social work practice that, that captures what we've covered uh, today on, on legal literacy uh, there are uh, social work law textbooks. Um, Bray and Preston Shute is one. Um, Alison Brammer has written um, uh, textbooks uh, on social work law. Um, uh, so there are, um, as I'm sure those uh, uh, listeners who have recently completed social work education courses will know only too well, there are books available. Um, uh, and at the risk of self-promotion i do think the making good decisions second edition is is uh, a a useful text uh, where uh, much of what we've talked about today is 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 captured there's also the material on the research in practice website on 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 legal literacy yes um and some of that material is aimed not just at social work practitioners but actually also aimed at supervisors um, and, and indeed senior leaders because it talks about a legally literate organisation. So it, the responsibility to be legally literate is not just on the individual practitioner, but the, 
uh, but also on the kind of culture that um, uh, uh, an adult social care department um, needs to demonstrate uh, to to support uh, to support its staff. But I think there there are a number of questions that um, making good decisions, for example, covers, uh, and the research in practice material covers that I I could just quickly articulate now. And and they are questions derived from standards in a branch of law known as administrative law. So this is not an act of parliament like the Care Act 2014 or the Mental Capacity Act 2005. This is an area of law that has developed over the years, uh, indeed over the centuries, that articulates the standards by which practice should be judged. Not just social work practice, uh, practice right across the board okay and and the questions are these so each each time a social worker or social care worker or supervisor or senior leader is reflecting on the work done and what might be learned from the work done or the work not done here are the questions the first is have we acted lawfully where we had a duty to do something have we done that where we had a power to do something, in other words, the discretion about whether or not we should do something, have we considered whether or not we should exercise that discretion and and to uh, um, exercise that power? So have we acted lawfully is question one. Question two is, if we put a 100 social workers in a room, drawing on what we know about the kind of case that we're focused on, Drawing on research, practice experience and practice wisdom, feedback from people with lived experience, have we acted reasonably and rationally? In other words, have we done what 99 of the 100 social workers in this virtual room would have done? And if we haven't done that, can we tell a coherent story about why in a unique set of circumstances we decided to do something else. So have we practiced reasonably and rationally? The next question is, have we acted in a timely way? There are occasions when we might reasonably defer a decision because we need more information. Yes. Or we need another opportunity to have a conversation with somebody. That is positive delay and that's lawful. However, there's a, there's a clear reason for doing so. Yes. However, sitting on your on your hands and doing nothing, or neglecting a particular case because there are many other cases to deal with, without thinking through the priority that should be given to the different cases, that's negative delay and that's unlawful. So, have we acted in a timely way? The next question then is: Have we considered all available information? Or, to put it another way, have we fallen in love with a hypothesis? <laughs> yeah? You know, have we have we yeah. fallen in love with a particular way of seeing a situation? Yeah. And indeed, there is a Somerset case from about eight years ago now, uh, where the decision that had to be arrived at is whether a person had been physically abused or whether there was an alternative explanation for the physical injuries 
that social workers and doctors had observed. Now, is that brittle bone disease or some other physical health issue that could account for the bruises and the physical injuries, or is this non-accidental injury? Is this physical abuse? Now, clearly, you have to consider all available possibilities. So you have to draw on all available information. Ultimately, you might need to make a decision. And the legal standard is not whether you necessarily get the right answer. The legal standard is, have you considered in a reasonable and rational way all of the information that was in front of you? And also, I'm guessing, Michael, recorded that you oh, absolutely. that. These are absolutely. the options that have been considered. Yes. And I've weighed this up. This is the information yes. that has informed the decision to do X, Y, and Z. Yes, and that's yeah. the last of the questions that I would have got to, but but it's fine to put it in now. Have I recorded fully not just the decision I reached, but why I reached it? Yes. And what in the end influenced me one way or another in relation to the decision that, that I've ultimately reached? But before we get to the recording... Yeah, sorry for jumping ahead. No, no, no. It's, 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 it's important. Um, the next question is, have I consulted with everybody that would have a legitimate expectation to be involved in the decision-making process? So, for example, in line with making safeguarding personal, have I spoken to the adult at risk? Hmm. Irrespective of whether they are verbal or nonverbal, uh, experiencing Alzheimer's or learning disability uh, or some other form of neurodiversity or disability, you know, have I have I endeavoured to consult with them through whatever medium of language and nonverbal communication is possible? Have I have I consulted with family members where they might have a reasonable expectation uh, to be involved? Uh, are there others, uh, whether friends, social networks, uh, other practitioners uh, in health, housing, social care, wherever, who might have a contribution to make? And have I considered those contributions um, in, um, excuse me, in the um, in the final decision making process? And then, very lastly, before we then get to writing all of this down or electronically recording it these days. Um, um, very often you have discretion to do something or not do something. Mm. Very often the legal rules give you discretion to either do something or not do something. And very often local authority policies and procedures give you some room for manoeuvre. That's what I mean by discretion. You have some room for manoeuvre. Well, I could do this, I could do that. Um, you must be able to demonstrate that where you have had that room for manoeuvre, either within the legal rules themselves or within local authority policies and procedures, that you have considered whether you should exercise your discretion in a particular way. I'll give you an example. The local authority does not have to charge for domiciliary care services. It has an option to charge or not to charge. Most local authorities, and I suspect this is true in Somerset, 
will charge for domiciliary care services if, as a result of a financial assessment, uh, an individual uh, is assessed as needing to pay a contribution. Indeed, yes. If the individual says, I want the service, but I'm not prepared to pay, mm. rather than simply say, well, if you're not prepared to pay, we're not prepared to uh, provide the service, you have to consider the discretion you have not to charge mm. because you do have that discretion in law as well as quite possibly in the local authority's own policies and procedures. Mm -hmm. And there may be times when you decide that actually it's more important to provide the service than it is to charge for the service. Yes. So that would be an example uh, uh, of how you might answer that particular question. So if you like, those are the questions that when you're thinking about showing your workings and you're thinking about recording, can you answer these questions positively rather than negatively? I think what's really come out of this conversation for myself, Michael, is about the importance of asking ourselves the right questions and that clarity to be able to develop that coherent argument, rationale for the decisions that have been or not been taken. Yeah. Are there any top tips in relation to legal literacy that you would like to highlight and share with our listeners? And I know I've put you on the spot here. Um, now I can think of some top tips. Regularly update, regularly update yourself um, uh, because the legal rules change. Uh, if you have, uh, if you can access case law decisions, for example, court of protection decisions in relation to best interest decision making and mental capacity assessments, for example, um, uh, and a good resource there that many people use is uh, the monthly briefings from 39 Essex Street, um, a, a chamber of barristers in London uh, for the latest case law. Yes, on, I recommend it too. So good. update yourself in terms of whether or not the legal rules have changed. Update yourself on uh, on case law that might have uh, something to to say um, uh, in relation to a particular area of practice that you're engaged in. Um, have regular conversations with legal practitioners. Mm. Uh, you know, the local authority will have uh, its solicitors, um, at least some of whom will specialise in children's safeguarding and adult safeguarding. Um, uh, you know, have have reflective lunch and learn sessions um, with with legal practitioners. Um, uh, you know, in, engage with them. Um, uh, I think we do that. We do that far too little. Um, and have a look at safeguarding adult reviews. Um, both those completed and published by Somerset. Um, some uh, many completed also uh, um, for other safeguarding adult boards. To see what they say about about the legal rules um, and social workers' familiarity or lack of familiarity or skills in implementing uh, different legal rules, um, and if you have access to community care in form, if you have access to research in practice, uh, you know these are uh, resources uh, that you should access uh, periodically. 
to see uh, what has changed and what has happened. Thank you so much for your top tips, Michael. Hopefully, the session has been really interesting um, for those of you that are listening um, and really useful as well in helping you to to think about your own practice. Uh, One of the things I was pondering as Michael was uh, was talking just then was about um, undertaking audits or investigations. Because I know from my own experience, when I first started undertaking audits and investigations, that was the time that I think I learned the most about decision-making and record-keeping through looking at somebody or lots of other people's work and thinking, how did, how, how was that decision made? How did you get from A to M to Z? Um, and that, that really influenced my own practice. Um, in, in Somerset, we've, uh, we've uh, just started a new, uh, quite ambitious audit program where everybody, all practitioners within adult social care are involved in monthly audits now, including our DAS. So, uh, so there, were, there is that opportunity. But if you're not from Somerset, um, yeah, I'd really encourage you to try to do some audits um, or to get involved in investigations if you get the opportunity to do that, because it really, really benefits practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Michael, thank you so much for Pleasure. generously again, giving your time and coming to talk with me and our listeners I'll just let our listeners know we are planning another podcast together. Um, it's going to be um, it's going to be next year. Um, we're going to be talking about learning from SARS, so learning from safeguarding adult reviews. So Michael's going to be able to share some some insights that will hopefully be really helpful and inform your practice. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, do let us know. We have got an email address that is uh, there in the show notes. So you can always get in contact with us if you would, um, if you've got any questions, again, get in touch and uh, do uh, do subscribe because then you'll get a notification and, uh, and maybe share the podcast with others who might find it useful. So thank you very much, Michael, and uh, look forward to uh, meeting with you again for the next episode. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you.